0: Good morning, it's June the 21st, Sunday morning. Uh, I I hope and pray more than anything else that this Sunday you will find that as we deal with the seventh church in this series uh, on the seven churches of Revelation, that you will be challenged to think about your own walk with Jesus Christ and the fact that we are called to be in this life serving him with zeal and, and devotion So my prayer is this morning as you worship that you will indeed uh, uh, ask God for that kind of of faithfulness that only he can provide his people in days in which we live. I want to call us to worship by reading to you a short psalm. It's Psalm 117. I ask you now to hear the word of God. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him. All you people for great is his love toward us, and faithfulness and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Let us worship God. This morning we're dealing with the last of the seven letters in Revelation. We'll be going to chapter three, beginning with verse 14 as we read Jesus's message to a church in a city called Laodicea. I invite you now to hear the word of God. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see those who i love i rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent here i am i stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door i will come in and Eat with that person and they with me the one who is victorious I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne whoever has ears to hear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches would you pray with me father in heaven as we look at this last letter and we examine our own hearts, we're very much aware that there's a lukewarmness that is possible within us. And so we ask, O Holy Spirit, because we know that God loves us, that he disciplines and reproves those whom he cares for. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would tenderly come into our lives this morning and teach us, O God, how indeed to live in these days for Jesus Christ, as we look to this letter of old to people who walked with you long ago. For this we ask and we pray in the name of Christ our Lord and the people of God said together, amen. One of the interesting things as we've gone through this series and I have learned so much from the scriptures in examining this trials and the And the circumstances that other believers have faced is that we've actually been able to be invited into people's lives and see their warts as well as their shining moments of life. And so as you and I read the scriptures, as we study them, we recognize that there are things in our own lives that need to improve as we follow Christ. And, and that is the whole purpose of Jesus' message. It is to help us remember that the only salvation we have is in him. The only power to live in the days that we live comes from him. And so in light of that, we've looked at these letters and recognized that there's a pattern there that Jesus addresses the churches He addresses them individually and collectively as a people. He then goes on and he talks about what he knows about them, who they are, where they are, what they're facing. And then he gives them a message that includes an acknowledgement of the challenges they're facing, an exhortation to live for Christ in where they have been planted by him as the body of Christ. And then if they will follow him and be faithful to him, he gives them a promise And it is no different in this letter that we come to. And so as we come to the seventh letter and we look back over this series to think about what were the dangers each of these churches faced, we found in Ephesus that the danger was for those Christians in that day that they could lose their first love for Christ. That in Smyrna, that their facing suffering was causing them such overwhelming problems that Jesus addressed their fear of suffering and that the danger that they faced was that fear would somehow cause them to compromise in their allegiance to Christ. In Pergammon, they dealt with problems dealing with teaching that was erroneous. They dealt with doctrinal compromise where they watered down the gospel or what it meant to follow Christ in such ways that they lowered the standard when men lowered it in such a way that they weren't even following Christ anymore. In Thyatira, there was a moral compromise that was infecting the church. It wasn't just that a couple of people had gone off the rail or fallen into sin, but it was that the whole church had tolerated it and was accepting it as okay. We found that in Sardis, there was a spiritual deadness, that, that, that people looked alive in Jesus Christ. They looked like they were going to church, they were worshiping, they were reading the Bible, but in their heart of hearts, they were dead to what God was asking them to be and to do. They just simply went through the motions of their real faith in Christ. And then in last week, as we dealt with Philadelphia, We saw that they of all the people of the churches that we have seen in these six letters up until then, that they were to hold fast to what they believed in. And that there was a chance that they could lose that faith in Christ and the teaching of the faith. And therefore they were encouraged, be careful of the failure to hold on to what you have been given in the teaching of the gospel. This morning we come to the last church and it's the church of Laodicea. We know that Paul the apostle wrote a letter to Laodicea, but we do not have it in the New Testament. There's been some circumstances where some have many, many have hoped that one day that letter would be found, but by God's mercy or by his own divine providence, we do not have it today. But we do know there was a church in Laodicea And because of that, we know that the city at that time was known for its tremendous financial wealth. It it literally was a crossroad of a trading route that went east and west and north and south. And because of that, it was connected to the other six churches through one of these trading routes, but then supplied a route for other cities and other provinces. And so this crossroad became a place where, where commerce became so vital and so important. And so in that, the Laodiceans were people who were known to be living in an area that was tremendously rich in soil and in sheep. In fact, they produced sheep that actually had black wool, which was, which was incredibly desired by people throughout the Roman Empire. These people also lived about six miles south of a city called Herapolis, where there was a hot spring. And that hot spring was a place where people would go for medicinal purposes. They would go there to heal from their wounds. And as that spring would come out of the ground, it would flow past Laodicea south across a huge plateau and then drop some 300 feet to a lower area that led eventually into a river that would go to the city of Colossae. Paul wrote a letter to the city there, the Christians in Colossian. And he wrote that letter of Colossians in the sense that he was writing to people who live south of the people of Laodicea. The most important thing about the letter that we read this morning is that the Laodicean church claimed to be spiritually rich, not just physically, but they thought of themselves as not just being physically or monetarily rich. They thought of themselves as being spiritually rich and they had achieved that spiritual wealth on their own. It is for that reason when you turn to the letter and you see the address that Jesus begins with, he says, first of all, these are the words of the one who is the amen. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, you've heard people say in the midst of preaching like this, amen, brother, amen, sister. Well, what are we saying when we say that? Or when we sing a a song, a hymn, and we close it with a amen, what are we saying? Well, we're actually validating by word what we have heard or what we've received, and we're binding ourselves to it as this is the truth. Amen. That's the truth. And so when you think of Jesus as the one who says, I am the amen, he is holding himself up as the one who is the source of truth. And in that source of truth, he goes on and says, I am the one who is the faithful and true witness. Now, this is important in this letter because the issue in the Laodicean church is these individuals thought themselves to be so spiritually rich and wealthy in the things of God, they saw themselves as being true and faithful witnesses. And Jesus says, I am the one who is faithful and true And therefore he holds himself up as a way for them to measure their faithfulness in looking at him, not at one another or not at other churches. It's kind of startling, isn't it? You see, in our Christian walk, we oftentimes measure our own spiritual growth as we compare ourselves to each other. And Christ will not allow that for this church or for us. You see, the standard is that we become like Christ, that we imitate him, that we obey him, that we keep his word. And so when you and I deal with this whole letter, there is a strong awakening that Christ is trying to elicit from us. And that is if you base your spiritual life on what you perceive as a comparison with other people, you've got the wrong measurement. You should be looking to Christ and to Christ alone. The second thing he says about himself is that he is the one who is the ruler of God's creation. And many interpreters who read that think that Jesus is talking about that place in the beginning of the Gospel of John where John says at the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And he was with God in the creation and all creation was made through him and by him and for him. And though there may be truth in that comparison, here Jesus is referring to him being the ruler of God's creation, meaning that new creation that is now being brought forth out of the earth from his resurrection. He is raising up a new people, a people that are neither Jew nor Gentile, but they are one in Jesus Christ. It is a a new kind of humanity that has been created because of his work of the cross. And so this this whole message to the Laodiceans is, I am raising up a new kind of people that do not use comparisons with the things of the world. They only compare themselves as they look to me as their Lord and their savior. And for that reason, Jesus goes on to say, therefore, I know your deeds. I know your deeds as you follow me. And here is where the indictment gets tough. It's kind of one of those moments where you you have one shoe drop and here comes the other one. You're neither hot nor cold. Now many have looked at that passage and said, well, Jesus wants people hot for him, not cold for him. No, Jesus says, I would have you either be cold or hot. One of the two, either one. And as you look at that passage, you begin to say, well, what is Jesus really talking about? Well, he's really talking about the fact and using that spring that came from the six miles north of the city, that hot spring where people would go to and they would find help for healing for their bodies. It was an effective place for that. And as the water would head south and head toward the city of Colossae, by the time it got to the city of Colossae, it was a wonderfully cool spring that gave life refreshing water to people who drank from it. And so as Jesus says to the Laodiceans, I wish you were hot or cold. He's speaking about their effectiveness as witnesses for Jesus Christ. I wish you were somehow successful in what you are saying you believe in. I don't know about you, I find that tremendously powerful because what the indictment speaks about is that they were living for Christ in a city that was incredibly wealthy. They were wealthy themselves, but they were barren in the works of God. They had had become barren in furthering the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He says, you say you're rich, but you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Why? They believed in Jesus. But that belief was not changing the city or the people within it. They were satisfied with their being believers in Christ. But for some reason, Their faith was making no life-changing impact in the place they lived. And it begs the question, does my life, my faith in Christ make any difference to anyone else? Can people see my good works and give glory to God? Do they notice how I live and begin to ask questions about why I live the way I do? You see, at first we think, okay, well, they just needed to work harder. That wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't that they weren't working hard. They were, they were working hard and becoming very wealthy from it. The problem was they were not connected to the source of where that change came from. How do I know that? Well, notice what Jesus says. He says, buy from me. Buy from me three things, gold that is refined by fire so that you could become rich. Buy from me white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. Buy from me salt that you put in the eyes so you can see. What is he saying? Well, interestingly enough, that gold is a gold that is not literally dug out of the ground. It is gold that is more precious than gold. It's a faith in Jesus Christ that abides. And so when a, when a Christian becomes a Christian and they begin to walk with Christ, the love for Christ can get, begin to wane, the devotion to Christ can begin to wane in such ways that they do all the things you're supposed to do as a Christian, but in essence what happens is they in their religion become more religious than relational to the Lord himself. In other words, they go through the outward appearance of having a relationship with Christ, but they never talk to Christ. They never seek Christ. They never have time to worship him or draw near to him. They simply live out a moral life based upon what Christians believe. And there is the real problem. There is no one that can live a moral life when you compare your life to Christ in fact any living of morality in the christian life comes from abiding in jesus christ it doesn't come from us this white clothes the the shameful nakedness well they, they they got to the point where they thought they were so right with god they probably never even thought about what sins they were committing anymore or confessing them to god they had probably come to a place where they were so used to christianity on their terms that they had become blind blind in their lives to how they were no longer seeking and loving christ and following him they were simply living jesus's life according to their own terms and that for that reason jesus says listen i rebuke and discipline those i love it's almost like a parent looking to a child and saying your behavior is not in accord with what we believe to be right and true and good. What was wrong with their behavior? Well, it betrayed not a relationship with Christ. It betrayed that they wanted Christ to be their God, but they wanted their God to supply their needs according to his riches so that they could build their own kingdom not the kingdom of God. You see, that's the real problem with mammon. Jesus talks about this in the gospel. You cannot serve both mammon and God. And here the wealth of their lives had choked out their devotion to God. Jesus warned in this parable of the sower of the seed, how, how the cares of life can choke out our relationship with Christ, can cause us to be distracted, how sin can deflect us from the Lord every day. Is that happening in your life this morning? Where is your walk with Christ? Do you feel close to him? Do you draw near to him? Or do you think of him as someone you put on a shelf and go back to every once in a while? In the Laodicean church, Christ was simply a figure they put on the shelf and called out when they had any need, but here Jesus says, they had come to a place where they felt like they needed nothing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine coming to a place in your Christian walk where you looked to Christ and you said to him, I don't need anything, I'm good, I'm good, Jesus. What about your struggles with idolatry or lust or your jealousies with others? What about those times where you coveted things that weren't yours? They were blind to those things, Jesus says. They could no longer see how sinful they really were and how many things they left unconfessed in their life before the Lord so that they were left unhealed. They had become basically calloused, calloused in their spiritual life. Do you know what a callous is? A callus is a, a buildup of the skin through, through use in such a way that you can actually lose feeling in your, your skin because of a callus. Jesus said, listen, I love you so much. I want you to know this because it's hurting you. Be earnest. Be earnest for what? To come to him. To seek him. To pray and ask him to give you the kind of faith that changes not only your life but the life of other people who you influence repent repent turn away from those things you trust in and put your trust only in Jesus that's why it's so amazing the next passage is really used in many times as an evangelistic tool i stand at the door and knock anyone who opens the door i can come in and i'll have supper with them we tell people who are not christians that here jesus doesn't talk to non-christians he talks to laodicean christians and here is the picture we have of the real fellowship this church had they had created a culture of faith Where they loved God with their lips, with their money, with their time, with their efforts, but not with their heart. How do I know that? Because Jesus is outside of their fellowship. He's not in. He's standing at the door and knocking, saying, let me in. And they're not even aware that he's not in the room with. It's almost as if the church who worshiped the one true Lord had pushed the Lord out of the church building, closed the door and basically in essence excommunicated him from their fellowship. How could that be? Because they had believed their security was no longer in walking with the Lord Their security was with how much they had come to possess. I fear probably this more for the Christian church in America than any other letter we've written. We believe that we can solve any problem with money or with the right finesse or the right program or the right this or the right that. And the only thing that will save the church in the days that we live from the incredible idolatry and at work in our world is Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I don't want to know about Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And therefore Jesus says to these Laodiceans, if they will repent and come back to him and rely on him and look to him for all that they need for their daily walk with him, he says to those who will victorious, I will give you the right to sit on my throne. What is he talking about? Well, for those who who understand what Jesus is saying here and they turn away from that kind of Christian lifestyle that denies Christ and begin to seek Christ in everything, the 12 disciples were told by Jesus in Matthew 19 that that kind of life will lead them to one day be co-rulers with Jesus Christ, that they will stand with him and sit with him at his throne and they, they will become the judges of nations. In fact, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 12, he says that those who have faith in Christ, who trust in him, who lean upon him, who seek him daily, they will one day reign with Christ when he comes again. You hear it? This tremendous promise that God gives is, if we will let the externals go and begin to seek Christ and understand that there'll be nothing in my life worthy of value unless it is Christ in me, my hope of glory. Then I'm gonna eventually be spit out of his mouth like lukewarm water. But if I turn to him, cry out to him, in the way that David cried out, Lord, oh, search me and know my heart and see if there be any wicked way within me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That is the kind of relationship that God is telling these Laodiceans that they are blind to desperately are needed. They have all the externals of being wealthy, but they're impoverished, but it's not too late. God stands at the door and knocks. Let me ask you this morning, he's standing at your door knocking, have you let him in? I'm not talking about whether you're saved or not. I'm talking to those of you who are saved, who have received Christ. Is Christ someone who is in your life instead of on a shelf in the pantry? May God reign in our lives and save us from our own sins. To the glory of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.